When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis today. This is August Baker. Today we're talking to Dr. Christos Tombras, a supervising psychoanalyst with a Lacanian orientation practicing in London. He's a member of the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research. He lectures, runs workshops, and facilitates reading groups. His main research interest is in a dialogue between continental philosophy and psychoanalysis. And today we're talking to Dr. Tombras about his recent book, Discourse Ontology, Body and the Construction of a World from Heidegger through Lacan. Welcome, Dr. Tombras. Welcome, and thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I was just looking at your, I said your main research interest, and I remember one of the interesting points in your book is, and you're quoting Lacan, and he's talking about his frustration, and he says, it seems to me that it's hard to take an interest in what is becoming a research product, project. I mean that I'm starting to do what the word research implies, namely to go around in circles. I don't, I don't know if that was, <laughs> that was your... Tell us about this project and whether it involved going around in circles. <laughs> I did not know. Lacan, at some point, was quite frustrated with the progress of his own research, so that's why he goes into etymology. In my case, I was very interested, I mean, I was interested in Lacan because this is my training and this was my focus in psychoanalysis. And um, but reading Lacan, you can recognize continuous references to Heidegger, either directly or indirectly. And so that raised my interest to see what is this Heidegger about. And then I saw that Heidegger actually is very uh, critical of psychoanalysis, of Freudian, of the Freudian uh, uh, kind of psychoanalysis, but he is very, very uh, critical. So I was intrigued. How do these things, uh, Heideggerian philosophy and psychoanalysis as a science, as I thought it was, reconcile? Uh, one with the other. This was the starting point. And uh, gradually I became more and more immersed in the subject. And um, it's quite a nice book. I learned a lot from reading it. I think um, part of, uh, well, Heidegger's background is interesting, uh, of course, because uh, maybe we should right off the bat touch on his uh affiliation with National Socialism and his um, refusal to, you know, apologize for that afterwards. And I think he had a significant breakdown uh, after 
World War II and um, went to psychoanalytic treatment or, or psychotherapeutic treatment and uh, engaged in a uh, collaboration with Medard Boss. Could you uh, give us some background on that? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, one important thing is my position about Heidegger's Nazi connections. Uh, these are very problematic in my in my view, and uh, one should not ignore them. And in fact, this could be a deal breaker if I could see, if one can see in Heidegger's philosophy, in Heidegger, Heidegger's uh, phenomenology or ontology, if one can see elements that could be thought as Nazi or fascist, uh, then the whole project should be abandoned. It is very problematic if there was. It would be very problematic if there was something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I cannot see anything in Heidegger's ontology and fundamental ontology in his philosophy, not in his moral as- the moral aspects of his philosophy. I did not see anything that I could actually think of it, or it could be thought as Nazi or fascist. Uh, which then allowed me to say that as far as some of the conclusions of Heidegger are concerned, can be useful in my research, my own research, I will use them. Heidegger, I consider Heidegger to be like a tool, like an instrument, facilitating a kind of thinking. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in apologizing about his political um, affiliations and mistakes. That said, because of the Nazi, uh, because of the collapse of Germany and uh, his being banned from the academy, academia after the World War II, uh, he did suffer Heidegger a mental breakdown. This was not, however, that may brought him in connection in contact with uh, Metal Boss. Metal Boss, uh, a Swiss psychiatrist, read *Being in Time* by Heidegger and was intrigued by the uh, repercussions this book had in his own thinking about psychiatry. So he came into contact with Heidegger, Method Boss, uh, regardless of Heidegger's mental suffering, and asked Method Boss, asked him, Heidegger, to clarify some questions that he had and um, confirm some suspicions that Method Boss had about uh, psychiatry and Heideggerian philosophy. And this together, uh, this this encounter uh, led to a number of seminars that Heidegger gave to some colleagues and students of Metabos later in the 1950s and 60s, which has been published. With these seminars, hold great interest uh, for the field of psychiatry, psychology, and psychoanalysis. It is in these seminars that Heidegger shows, uh, elaborates his critique and um, makes his disagreement with Freud clear. And at that point, he has been someone who has benefited from, I don't know whether you would call it analysis or treatment, but I think the person's name was Gibbs Sottle. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. And of all of the letters that he receives, Heidegger, he did show an interest in, in psychology and, and psychiatry. And in a sense, um, I think you say in your book, I think it's very difficult 
to improve on Heidegger's writing because he uses his words so carefully. But I think you you um, you clarify or you um, you summarize it very well. And one of the things you say is that he considers the adoption of the modern scientific worldview as an impoverishment, that it comes with a number of unexamined presuppositions, which narrows the way we are opened to um, being and our encounters with other beings. Yes, indeed. I, I think we need to go a tiny bit to the, uh, the origins of Heideggerian thought. Heidegger became interested in the question of being, what was called being in philosophy, uh, through Brentano. Brentano, a philosopher of the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, had uh, posited the, the idea of intentionality, that uh, you cannot study the human intellect, the, the consciousness, uh, regardless of the entities that it is observing. It is always directed towards entities. This thought of Brentano was taken by Husserl, who was a student of Brentano, uh, and became a maxim of a philosophy that said, let's go back to the things to see what it is, the human mind looking at things, and this connection between the things and the human mind. And Husserl created a field of, of philosophy which he called uh, phenomenology. And Heidegger took this maxim of Husserl's to its extreme. He said, if we're going to see about the things themselves, go back to the things themselves, then we need, we, it is almost unavoidable to see that the human mind cannot be separated from the things it is observing at all. That the distinction mm -hmm. between object and subject is a, is a problematic distinction, is a mistake, is an error that we do because we are confused by the fact that we have an intellect and we look at things and we think that we can do without it. Reaching this conclusion, Heidegger then uh, reconstructs the history of philosophy on the basis of that, that the human being is in the world in a way that cannot but be in the world and sees things in a way that can then study it and understood as being historical, changes with the centuries, with the millennia. And observing that, Heidegger says that there is a worldview, which is the ancient worldview, and this worldview, worldview the ancient worldview, meaning the ancient Western, of the Western canon, ancient Greek mainly, uh, is giving its place to the modern worldview that starts with Descartes and Galileo in the 16th century. That change, Heidegger claims, uh, is crucial because changes the way we think about what we can know about the world, changes the way we can have scientific research, for example. And that change because it entails an engagement with mathematics and mathematical concepts, measurement and uh, formulas and so on and so forth, becomes a bit, Heidegger claims, mechanistic and poor, impoverished. And, uh, it distorts the phenomena that it purports mm -hmm. to study. So this is where Heidegger says that modern worldview even though 
at some specific fields has done wonders, for example, modern technology, um, exploration of space, exploration of uh, the body, um, medicine, and so on and so forth. When it speaks about the human being, it distorts the phenomena. It destroys the phenomena, really, and cannot in any effective way speak about the human being. Modern science, Heidegger claims. Mm -hmm. And he thinks, Heidegger thinks, that the same uh, sin, let's say, if we can call it sin, uh, is committed by Freud. That Freud, in his attempt to speak about the human being, adopting, uncritically adopting the modern worldview, scientific worldview, uh, Freud distorts the phenomena that he proposed to uh, study and understand. Mm-hmm. How does this quote relate to what um, you're saying? This is Lacan. I'm quoting from your book. Lacan says, I am saying, contrary to what has been trumped up about a supposed break on Freud's part with the scientism of his time, that it was this very scientism that led Freud, as his writings show, to pave the way that shall forever bear his name. The subject upon which we operate in psychoanalysis can only be the subject of science. How, how does that relate to, uh, you know, Heidegger's critique of the scientific worldview? Hmm. That, that is a very interesting point, actually. What happened, uh, what Lacan would be in agreement with Heidegger in this, that with Descartes and uh, with the modern scientific worldview, we have the human intellect, Descartes sees the human intellect as a subject that observes objects and studies these objects and is interested uh, in these objects, objects of the world, all kinds of objects of the world. And also Descartes claims that the human mind has the tools, mathematics that is, to speak about these objects, to have a scientific understanding of these objects. Previously, many of the aspects of being in the world, many of the facets, shall we call them, of being in the world were thought as being uh, related to divine revelation or divine messaging or unexplained phenomena and so on. It is with Descartes that we think that everything is in principle explainable. And Freud, Lacan claims, takes the phenomena of the human mind, for example, a dream, a symptom, a hysterical symptom, an illness, a mental illness. And he says, truthful to Descartes, that these are in principle explainable. These are not uh, chance phenomena. These are not uh, coincidences. These are phenomena that can be studied and understood. And it is for the human being who has experienced this phenomena uh, the task to look at this phenomena and tell us about them. That is Freud's scientific worldview that Lacan says is at the origin of psychoanalysis. The subject of psychoanalysis is the subject of science implies this sentence, this sentence of Lacan, implies that unless you think that the phenomena of the mind are explainable, you will not then you will not be able to 
see what psychoanalysis is all about. I see. And um, that's helpful. And so, it, as I understand it, you're going to look at Lacan and work with Lacan and see whether he uh, can avoid Heidegger's criticisms. Yes. I mean, reading Freud, you can see many things, and Lacan does read Freud. You can see many things. You can see the brilliance of his uh, intellect. You can see the, uh, the daring nature of his conclusions. But you can also see that deep in mind, deep in deep somewhere hidden, is this belief that everything that happens, everything that uh, is observable in by psychology, by psychiatry, by psychoanalysis, uh, after all, can be explained with concepts like energy, which is affected with uh, laws that can actually uh, operate in this way, not the other way. And even though Freud is careful not to speak about, for example, causality and determinism, he only allows this to be so, shown only very limited places in his work. There is mm-hmm. the underlying belief that this is in principle possible, that you could have a final deterministic understanding of the human psyche. Mm-hmm. Now, Lacan thinks, rejects that. He doesn't say in any, in any explicit way that Freud was wrong, but he rejects that. He says that if we look at what Freud does, not that he he doesn't say that in these words, but this is my understanding of what he says. If we look at what Freud does, uh, not his conclusions, not his explanations, not his theoretical models, which after all, he, Freud, kept reserved the right to change as needed, Mm -hmm. as his research progressed. If you look at what he does, we see that he that the phenomena he observes are phenomena which are mainly linguistic phenomena. Human beings suffer with language, in language, and we speak about our suffering in language, and we can be treated with language. So this is something that Lacan says, you cannot avoid it in psychoanalysis. Whatever you mm-hmm. think about what unconscious is, what the drives or the instincts are, what biology does behind all of this, The fact of the matter is that psychoanalysis is something that works with words on uh, material, which is words. Something that the patient says to you in the room, not anything else, just words. And when he goes there, Lacan goes into the the material of psychoanalysis and he uh, observes what I just said, that it's just words. He then, how can I say that? He um, recasts uh, the Freudian conclusions in terms of the linguistic phenomena that they represent. For example, when when Freud speaks, for example, about condensation in a dream or displacement of meanings in a dream, as some of the mechanisms that are Um, you can observe in the dream work. Lacan says these mechanisms are very similar to what linguists call metonymy and metaphor, for example. 
And in fact, they are the same mechanisms, only that the field of operation, the realm is a bit different. Uh, the, mm-hmm. These are the same mechanisms. So he's, he starts by doing a rereading, let's say, of Freud, getting, uh, avoiding the mechanistic remnants of the 19th century scientism in Freud's background and staying at the phenomena that Freud observes. This is the starting point of Lacan's avoiding uh, Heidegger's criticism, that we don't need to go into Freud's conclusions. We can stay with the phenomena and see what we can think about them. Right. And I guess um, I think a lot of listeners here would say, well, there's a lot more that goes on in psychoanalysis than words. There are, um, you know, blushing, um, embarrassment, squirming, um, body gestures, missing appointments, telephoning. Isn't there a lot more that goes on in psychoanalysis than words? Yes, that's that's a very interesting thing because what is exactly language and what is what are words and what are all these things, really? Uh, I think we need to understand language as something much more general than just mm-hmm. the verbal, the verbal aspect of words. The main, much more general and much more. Um, um, okay. I cannot think of a better word in general, actually. Yes. Comprehensive, Comprehensive, perhaps. What's happening is this. What is the important thing is this, that something can stand for something else. The idea that something can refer to something else. That's the important thing. Uh, Not symbolization. Let me try to think about this. Let me try to formulate it properly. Uh, when you speak about blushing, blushing is an event, a bodily event, which happens within a context. The context is something is being said and you feel embarrassed. Embarrassed means, perhaps, we can imagine now that you feel embarrassed. Embarrassed would perhaps mean that uh, you think of the what the other individual looking at you can think or might think about you and conclusions they might reach and so on. All of this happens in split in a split second. You don't put it mm-hmm. in words, but it, it it involves a whole world in which you are the person you are, you have the identity you have, and you are exchanging something with the person in front of you or the people in front of you, or you are in your thoughts, but you are not just uh, a biological uh, entity as such. You are a human being within a world where what you do has a meaning and uh, what you do or not do has repercussions. Mm-hmm. That is a linguistic world. This world only exists because human beings sustain that in language, in discourse, to put it in a different way. I see. I see. So you don't blush outside language. The only way you can blush outside, outside language... It would be, if we can imagine someone who is in in communicative uh, state in the hospital bed, and perhaps right, there is some right. kind of extra uh, flash of blood in the face. That could be not flashing, though. 
I thought what was one of the very, <laughs> perhaps this is related, perhaps it isn't, but I thought one of the interesting, uh, many interesting points in your book was what Lacan said about his dog. He says, I have a dog. Uh, my dog, in my sense, and without ambiguity, speaks. My dog has without any doubt the gift of speech. This is important because it does not mean that she possesses language totally. What distinguishes this speaking animal from what happens because of the fact that man speaks is that contrary to what happens in the case of man insofar as he speaks, she never takes me for another. By taking you for another, a subject puts you at the level of the capital O other. It is precisely this which is lacking to my dog. For her, there is only the small other. As regards to the big other, it does not seem that her relationship to language gives her access to it. It's, I don't know if that's related to what you were saying. It seemed to yes, me it was. Yes, yes, it is. It is. Because speech, the, the speech of the dog is just that the dog says something, something, and wav, wav, let's say, and expects like something. Watching. And expects something from you. I mean, and then you exchange messages with the dog, and that's it. But what you do to the dog, and what the dog does, you, you are not going to, if you say to the dog, I mean, the dog will speak to you, and you can speak back to the dog. But it will stay at that. The dog will not reach conclusions about whether you love him or her more than you love the other dog or whether you have mm -hmm. other dogs that you're going to when you leave the room or something of, of, of that matter. The dog sees you as who you are and just this. While with a human being, you meet another person and the other person is not only who you think uh, who, who the other person is, but also who you expect them to be for you, who you confuse them with, who do you identify them with, who do you think you can appear to them as, present yourself to them as. It is very complicated. The communication mm. between two human beings is much more than a channel of uh, uh, sound waves that go from one right. to the other. Right. Interesting. And so I think um, when we go to... Lacan, I think at some point you say Lacan uh, starts with the body when we move to his his um, his model. Um, and um, the the body and the real and jouissance. Can you give a I mean your book uh, describes these and how symbolization arises out of out of them. Uh, could you give uh, as an overview? Yes. I mean, the, the, the tricky concept that you are bringing in this discussion is the concept of jouissance, which is mm. a tricky in the sense that it is very complicated. It's, even the term is not translated into English, even though some people do translate it as enjoyment. Uh, so we would need to go into a genealogy of this term to really grasp the totality of what is meant uh, by the Lacanian theory of suicides. But we can right, say right. this in some way, that it all starts with a body in the sense that we are bodies in a world, a world that within our uh, uh, community of interactions, discursive community of interactions, has a meaning for us, but we are entering this world as bodies. We are in this world as bodies. So 
a newborn baby is coming into the world. Things are happening to this bo- the body of this baby. Things happening means uh, the baby is caressed, cleaned, but people are speaking and singing and uh, whispering to the baby. All of these are events that are happening in the body of the baby. And the baby starts organizing this, what is happening to the body, into categories. For example, this friendly face, that, that is the mother or the carer, or this friendly voice, or this uh, friendly breast that will give nutrition, and so on and so forth. So whatever happens to the body, we can call it Zuishans. That is, whatever happens to the body, that's, we call it Zuishans. But the Zuishans obtains uh, some kind of regularity and systemat- can be systematized. It is transformed into something that can, be, can have a meaning. So the friendly face, which is as such an aspect of Suisans, becomes the friendly face that comes again and again. That means the mother. So it becomes a symbol of something. So from the real of the friendly face, we have an identity. An identity is constructed, the mother. And from the identity that is constructed, the mother, a system of identities is also constructed. The mother, the other person, the need of the mother to go somewhere, my need to have my mother next to me, the love that the mother gives to me, and so on and so forth. And this is the construction of the world out of these small interactions, which at the end are interactions on the level of the body. And it's a movement from um, continuous to discontinuous, you point out. The movement from the body to uh, symbolization. Yes, that is a very tricky, that's a very tricky and difficult subject, actually, how this passes from the continuity to, from the complete continuity of what's happening in the chaos of the world in the eyes of the newborn infant to the distinct and distinct and constructed world that we are occupying uh, as children or adults. This passage from the the continuity to the discontinuity is a very complicated uh, field of research. Um, I don't have the answer how this can happen. How can this can be described? It's something that it is to be explored further. Right. And um, you end up with the um, using the tripartite division of let's see, real, signified, and imaginary in your synthesis, that part of Lacan remains. Is that right? Yes. The the real, the imaginary, and the symbolic. And um, at one point you're talking about um, Zizek. I don't know if that's the way you pronounce his name. but And you said that he provided, you know, a ninefold division, and you say, this doesn't seem like it'll be useful. Lacan was mainly interested in clinical applications. So this is a, this tripartite model is a, is something that is meant to be useful in thinking about what happens in psychoanalysis. Is that right? In the clinic as well, yes. I mean, it is, 
these concepts, these registers, the registers of the real, of the symbolic, the imaginary, are used to describe the phenomena that we all are all in. It's not only to describe the clinical phenomena in the okay. session, but in the session, uh, it is the role is the focus of the setting is on how these things inter um, inter interrelate, interconnect, and interact. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, right. So, for example, one can say in in the Lacanian understanding of what is happening in the session that you there is an axis of communication between you and the patient or the you and the analyst, whichever the point of view we decide mm-hmm. to take, which has expectations, ideals. You believe that this is the best analyst in the world. You went to them. You expect them to do, to make, because they are carrying a knowledge and they are going to um, uh, heal you or make you, help you suffer less. All of this can be thought in the Lacanian understanding of the three registers that we just said. These are uh, imaginary identifications. Uh, you think that this person who is in front of you, uh, let's imagine that it's a male analyst, that this person who is in front of you is a benign figure like your father or unlike your father or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be an imaginary construction that you are entering the, the setting the, the, the setting of the session. And the analyst can see that this is happening and can choose to actually distance themselves from this imaginary uh, axis by positioning themselves in, with what they say or w- what they do somewhere else unexpectedly. This is because they they do that. Let's presume that they have a clinical reason to do that. But when they do that, they go beyond the imaginary axis. They go to a symbolic axis, for example. So what I'm trying to say here is that this concept of the real, the symbolic, and the imaginary allows for a more refined understanding of interactions between human beings, both in the setting of a session and in general. And this uh, more refined understanding leads to uh, directions for the treatment, allows us to reach conclusions. Dr. Tombras, I was wondering, you know, how do we think of psychoanalysis in, in a Lacanian sense? Is it in terms of these three registers? Um, that you can think of what what happens in psychoanalysis. Uh, hello. Yes. No, I was a bit confused now. Uh, sorry. Can you repeat the question? Um, oh well, we were talking about you know the um, real, the symbolic, and the imaginary, and you were saying that the um, you know analyst can choose to be in the symbolic or and is in the imaginary. How does one understand the what happens in psychoanalysis when it works well? Do you understand it in terms of a, a draining or liquidating of the uh, real into the symbolic or from the uh, imaginary into the symbolic? How, does, how do you see successful analysis? Yes, I'm not completely sure if you can say that. I think, as we indicated earlier, the concepts real, symbolic, 
and imaginary are concepts that describe all kinds of human interactions, not only the ones in an analytic setting. And they describe the, the ways of engagement that human beings have, regardless of whether they know it or not. But if you know it, which is uh, something that the th- theory brings here in the picture, then allows you, if you are the analyst, to position yourself in the way you, and the way you interact with your patient in such a way as to make something change. Now, what is what is changing? Uh, it cannot be predicted as such. But guy, starting from what we said earlier, that everything starts with the body and uh, the jouissance, and uh, it becomes through a, a number of imaginary um, uh, identifications, it becomes a symbolic system of interactions, a proper world, let's say, if we have this um, general scheme that from the real we go to the imaginary and the symbolic, it's not completely accurate, but now for the purposes of this discussion, let's imagine that something like this is happening. Then you can say that a person that comes to you, you are the analyst, comes to you for, for treatment, they have a suffering, something that they're experiencing eventually in their body for example, an anxiety, or for example, a symptom that it could be uh, disturbs their normal life. And you try to make this into, to allow it to become something different, which is not uh, coming together with suffering. Then, if you describe it in this way, you can say that some part of the real, because an anxiety, we could imagine it as being on the level of the real, becomes more manageable, more uh, familiar to you, and eventually, okay, you are not suffering uh, from that anymore. So you can say that, even though it is a bit schematic, I think, in in fact, it's rather schematic, this, what I'm saying. Uh, So um, the... Uh, the I'm, I'm wondering the real is this uh, source is this center of chaos, um, and here's another quote from Lacan from your book: "The subject Lacan says is not the cause of himself. He bears within him the worm of the cause that splits him. For his cause is the signifier, without which there would be no subject in the real." But this subject is what the signifier represents, and the latter cannot represent anything except to another signifier. This is one of those Lacanian statements that seems so true, and yet I, it's so also so difficult to interpret. Now, how could we try to how could we try to approach this? I mean, we we need to clarify some concepts. The subject. What is the subject? The subject in Lacan is not identical, it's not equivalent to saying the human being. A human being can be a subject, but it's not always the case that the human being is a subject. And so they are not exactly identical, they are not synonyms. So a subject implies that you are already a subject of language, that you are within a system, a linguistic, a discursive system of interactions, a world that is constructed and maintained by other people who speak with you and at you and parallel to you and so on and so forth. That 
subject, the subject which is which the human being is, but it's not identical to the human being, uh, is how, how can I say it? No, it is. It's confusing actually. It's difficult to actually describe it. Um, the subject is represented by the his or her own sequence of or network of um, signifiers. The, the tricky thing is that that the signifiers that means the, the words that we are using. We are not inventing mm-hmm. them. We are not inventing right, them. Right. We are using words which are coming to us because we are entering a world that has a language had the language before we came into existence. Mm-hmm. So we are entering a linguistic world, and we are forced by this entrance into the linguistic world uh, to adopt it and use it. But we don't have any guidance in the beginning at all. The only guidance that we can have is with other signifiers. We are entering a world of signifiers, and whatever we do with these signifiers is guided and helped and facilitated by other signifiers. So let's say the baby cries and the mother says to you, "Are what, what is happening to you? Are you are hungry? And then the baby in that way, in the, this very simplistic way, understands, learns that his cry, his or her cry, was a cry for food and nutrition. And then this is a meaning that has been introduced to the crying of the baby, that the meaning was not there in the beginning. So this is a signifier. The human being adopts signifiers becomes a subject of language and uses these signifiers. And in the way every human being uses the signifiers that is invested with or occupied or occupied by, actually, in the way they use these signifiers, they present themselves. It is in this sense that Lacan says that uh, the subject is uh, what one signifier represents to another signifier. That is, in the interconnection of signifiers, your identity is coming through to me. That is the way you, as a subject, is represented in yours in the signifiers to me. The tricky thing with the signifiers here is that I'm using signifiers to speak to you. You are using signifiers to speak to me. Lacan is using signifiers to explain all of this. We are already in the world which is enforced, forced onto us in a linguistic world which is forced onto us. We are suffering in language, and we cannot but suffer in language. And yet we are trying to speak about language. That is the main difficulty of these concepts and now these ideas, that we are on the same level of the phenomena that we are trying to describe. We cannot stand aside. We cannot stand a bit elsewhere and look this phenomena from a distance. And, for example, to connect it with earlier, this is uh, what Heidegger says as well. It's not that the human being can stand vis-à-vis the world and decide not to take the world and go and do something else. You are already always in the world. You cannot do otherwise. And similarly, in the Lacanian understanding of what is happening, both in the session but also in, in life in general, is that you are in language... And you try to speak, that means you are in something that comes to you from outside, has been forced to you from outside because you are were forced to accept this language as your own. And you are there, 
and you're trying to speak about yourself. And this is a tension. Mm-hmm. There is always a tension between what is yours and what is not yours, what is internal mm-hmm. and what is external. Now, uh, there's a. Um, I thought that the uh, parable uh, that you present, the Lacan presented of a egg. Um, and Lacan focused on the question of limits in connection to the human body. The rims around holes on the body's surface were thought as loci, where jouissance flows faster, so to speak. To picture this, Lacan used a small parable in which he referred to the human being as a smooth-surfaced egg that breaks because of language. Um, I, I thought that was a helpful metaphor. This is this touches upon the other issue that we said earlier. How from that continuity we go into the discontinuity? Right. Because all of these questions are are connected, interconnected. So this parable of the, right. the human being as an egg that is smooth, nothing changes, everything flows around it. You can imagine it in in a river, and the water goes around it without making any turbulence, nothing. Uh, but mm-hmm. be, because the the human body is not an egg. Things are happening on the human body in loca- in localities. Some things are happening around the mouth. Some things are happening around the eyes, and so on. So, whatever, if we continue imagining this water flowing around the egg, some part of the egg becomes, well, not becomes, reveals itself as the mouth, let's say, or the eyes, and the flowing of uh, um, the world, let's call it like this, around this egg has a small turbulence, local turbulence there. And mm-hmm. this becomes more and more uh, complicated, shall we say, and eventually discontinues. Something breaks. And from and Lacan actually makes this joke, say, from uh, this egg, you make an omelette, omelette, that is home, that is a small omelette of a man, let's say. Manlet, mm-hmm. I think it has been translated into English. This is a parable, of course. This is not what is happening. Obviously, human beings are not eggs. But he's trying to describe this, that from something that in the beginning is completely undifferentiated and chaotic, like like white noise, nothing changes. It's all of this simultaneously, continuously, in all frequencies. Differentiations appear. And when you have a differentiation, then you can have a distinction between presence and absence. And you can have... You can start having things that can be identified and you enter into the arm of the uh, imaginary that we said earlier. Because you can def- you can identify something. Uh, that is, in contrast to, that is not it anymore. The breast. Breast versus the absent of the breast. And then it becomes more complicated and so on and so forth. Right. All right. So you're, you end up with a discourse ontology. Uh, can you tell us about um, the choice of those two words, uh, what, um, what you mean by an ontology here? And I guess discourse is a Lacanian term of art, and you're using it in his in Lacan's sense? Yes, yes. Discourse is in the way that we were describing just now that human beings speak together, and uh, whether they do speak simultaneously to each other is not related. Is not what is the important thing. That there is a community of human beings that create a world, and uh, this is a discursive space. And uh, 
that discursive space allows a, a world to manifest itself. As we said earlier, that um, when you speak to someone and you blush, there are many, many, many things that happen simultaneously with this blushing. Your identity, your expectations, your th- thoughts about the expectations of the other, of the others, your history, and so on and so forth. All of this, the collection of entities that comprise your world, is an ontology. It is an ontology. It has always been called an ontology philosophy. This is what ontology means. It means collection of entities. And uh, this is what Heidegger also says when he speaks about the clearing where entities gather for design to see. So this collection of entities which comprise your world, which is an ontology, can only be sustained for as long and as far as there are human beings holding the discourse. So what I'm trying to claim that I'm not claiming, I'm systematizing. I'm not inventing this, but I'm systematizing the conclusions that one can reach by bringing, as we said earlier, Heidegger together with Lacan. That is, that it's not that there is an ontology regardless of the human beings that have this world, that have constructed this world. It's not that the, each and every human being has direct say into how this world is constructed. Uh, it's not my invention. It's not your invention. We are brought into this. We are forced to accept it. We are forced to occupy it. But when we occupy it, we recreate it. We sustain it without within our interactions in the discursive space constructed by us. So I thought that the best way to speak about the world, as far as human beings are concerned, and that's the important thing, as far as human beings are concerned, is not the world as um, Martian beings are concerned or other kinds of beings. We do not know about them. I do not know anything about them. But as far as human beings are concerned, the world that we world that we built together can be described with something which I call discourse ontology. And I, and I thought systematizing, I say again, the, the work of some of the conclusions of Heidegger and some of the conclusions of Lacan, I thought that you can only approach, not you can only approach, you can fruitfully approach this discourse ontology in five different axes, which I identified as the speaking being, which is the human being that speaks, and then that which means uh, sustains the discourse. Truth, the question what truth is, is a whole subject on its own. We can go a bit later if we have time. Time as such, time meaning uh, what permeates our being in the world in the sense of presence versus absence. The most basic aspect of time is that the body as being the locus within from which all everything starts. What we were calling earlier about the suns and the events that happen on the body. And then all of this, how it brings together a world which is constructed by the discursive interactions of the, these bodies who are there and uh, who are thrown in. Right. 
Um, and I, I think you carefully do all this with a minimum of um, concepts from the outside. I think you you say you do use the concept of a structure as, uh, but other than that, you are, um, you are paying attention to Heidegger's uh, critique that we might be using these, these concepts, which come from a scientific worldview, which we haven't really thought through. That, that that is really true that I don't think we can go we can uh, get away without using the word structure structure is the only yeah. because structure what does it mean structure I don't mean any structured structure in any specific way I mean uh, a configuration of elements which have some stability yeah I think I looked it up uh, if I'm if I'm right it's a piling together. Piling together, there has to be some elements are together and have some specific configuration. If they don't have a specific configuration, then we don't have a structure. If they are randomly thrown together, but if they are thrown together in such a way as to the interactions to obtain, not to obtain, to have some kind of regularity, then we speak about structure. So right. it's a necessary extraneous concept. And it is not the case that we have always structures. There can be situations where there, are, there is no structure. But if we speak about the human beings and the way that we were trying to understand what is the world and what is the symbolic and what is suffering and so on, we need at least this extra concept that things can be coexist, can coexist in some kind of regular and stabilized way. That is right. structure. Right. And I, unfortunately, we are over time, uh, five months over time, but I, yeah, there's so much, uh, the, your discussion of sexuation and um, truth and um, Lacan's statement that I always speak the truth, uh, the death drive, um, treatment of uh, psychosis versus um uh, neurosis. There's just so much here, but unfortunately we're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Tom Bros. Thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss this. And yes, the time is limited and uh, I hope we were not being too schematic about some of this very complicated and difficult. It is. It, very, very true. Um, well, the book is very careful and um, I recommend it highly. So thank you very much. And uh, have a good evening. Thank you very much.